For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services is a leading cloud service provider giving builders the reliability and security they need. AWS pioneered cloud computing over 10 years ago to help any business from the smallest startups to the biggest global enterprises create their own applications and manage their workloads. By listening to what customers want, AWS is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on creating a business instead of an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws. Learn how AWS can help you build a better future today and let builders build. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media, a real company with an awkward name. I'm here with Lydia Polgreen, who's already laughing. Hi, Lydia. How are you? I'm doing great, Peter. How are you? Good. You have a newish title. You're the editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post. It's true. Thanks for coming. I know you're busy. Pleasure. Up until late last year, you were working at the New York Times. That is correct. I spent almost 15 years at the New York Times. So we'll talk about why you left and what you were doing. But let's talk about your current job, first of all. So you are running the thing that has someone else's name on it. It's Ariana Huffington's company, but she's no longer there. You took over what, early, late December? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I officially started on January 9th, and my, my first official decision was that I wasn't going to call it the Pole Green Post. Probably did not. Probably a lot of, not, not as much SEO value yes, exactly. in Pole Green Post. So um, you've done a lot of panels, and you've, you've, you've been sort of vocal in public. I don't think you've made any significant changes to the site. Is that right? Am I missing anything? Um, no. I mean, we're, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of, um, you know, thinking through a fairly significant uh, reorganization of the editorial staff and, um, you know, thinking about the best way to organize what is a pretty robust newsroom to chase what I think our mission should be. So let's, um, let's start there. So you've alluded to, to reorgs, something's coming. What's that going to look like? What do, what do you want to change? Well, I think that the mandate of HuffPost traditionally has been a little bit, it's shifted over the years. You know, it started out as a kind of answer to the Drudge Report, um, kind of a lefty um, aggregation site. And also a salon for Ariane Huffington and her famous friends. Absolutely. And, um, you know, the blogging platform was a way to bring a lot of excitement and lots of different voices um, to to the site. And I think that, you know, the the, the landscape has changed so much since then. Um, You know, you to be uh, a unique thing uh, to be able to publish uh, on the Huffington Post and say, I've been published on the Huffington Post, but now you have Medium, you have people publishing on LinkedIn, uh, Forbes, there are lots of people in that space. Right. So So. for a while, then HuffPo moved to really heavily leaning on unpaid contributors that was rightfully controversial. There were lawsuits involving people not getting paid. Peeled back from that a bit. Yeah, although it's kind of funny to think uh, of all of the fights over paying contributors. I mean, we are all uploading our most private information into Facebook every day. Yeah. And they're making... Well, that's because we're waiting to sue Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, good luck. Yeah. But they're making billions and billions of dollars, uh, and their whole business model is is essentially that. Um, I think partly, right? Like, like you said, like the, the, the idea of like you contributing something to someone else's platform, and everyone sort of gets the rules of the road at this point. Yeah. No, and that, so that's, that's, been a, that's been a real kind of substantive change in the, in the nature of the, of the landscape. So, you know, HuffPost definitely has had a tradition of doing, having really strong original reporting. I mean, they won a Pulitzer Prize um, and, uh, you know, have won, we just we just won an, an Ellie this year uh, for a big piece that uh, that ran um, on the High Line. So that's, that's the Oscars for magazines. It's the publishing. Oscars for magazines, exactly. Oscars, Emmys, Grammys, you know, you, you pick the award. The Ellie is an elephant. The Ellie is There's an elephant. There's now an elephant sitting in the Vox Media cafeteria for Eater, which is very cool. Good yeah, job, it's, 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 it's a very uh, magazine-y uh, award, it, and it's also quite awkward um, and takes up a lot of space. But um, And it's it's copper, so as you'd expect for a magazine award, it's very designy. So anyway, so, so we've, you know, we've always done original reporting, yeah. and we've always tried to be really impactful with that original reporting. But it's um, not known for that. It's not. It has not been known for that as much as um, I think it should be known for that, actually, because I think that they... They've, they've had a really, you know, we've had a really strong record of doing original reporting, but um, it has not been the reputation for whatever reason, despite yeah. winning all these awards and, you know, having Well, in part because they did staff. tons of aggregation, right? So that was one of the things they were fighting there against. Was, there was and, a and significant and amount of aggregation, yeah. And then also there was a period where the Huffington Post and BuzzFeed went through this as well in order to signal that they were very serious, would hire someone from the New York Times 
or some other august publication, and that person would then leave a year later. And sometimes they did good work in between. Sure, yeah. Uh, I think one of those people won a Pulitzer, like yeah. you said. But oh, he's was, still there. He's still David there. Okay, yeah. my mistake. Yeah. But but a lot of those folks would come in from sort of old media, mm-hmm. established media, and for whatever reason, they did not stick around. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you know, that's 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 a pretty common pattern at a lot of yeah. publications, right? People come in, um, you know, digital media companies, you know, make hires, make prestige hires. They stay for a while, then people move on. I feel like the days, my career feels very um, atypical uh, for someone of my age. I'm 41. Uh, I stayed at the same place for 41 years. Most of the people that I that who are my peers have worked at three or four or five uh, news organizations over that period of time. 15 years, right? The yeah, 15 yeah. years, yeah. Almost. I just fact check you. On, yeah. On air. Yeah. What did I say? Forty-one. So we'll we'll keep it in there. It's part of the verite. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so it sounds like what you, what you're leading into. And I keep interrupting you. Is is you want more original reporting? So what do you want to focus on? And that presumably means you're going to spend less time on something else. Yeah, I mean, I think we want to do more original reporting, and I, I think I think that for us that that sort of branches in two different directions. One is I'm really fascinated by power. To me, that's the big story um, right now, and who has it and who doesn't have it. And at the moment, um, the powers that be, whether they're in Washington, um, in the in the White House, or the Democrats or big corporations, are are primary job needs to be to um, hold those powerful institutions to account. So I think you're going to see an increased emphasis on investigative reporting, maybe not on the most obvious targets. You know, you're going to see, obviously, the the Washington Post, the New York Times, they all have big staffs that are are going after the biggest and richest targets. And so we're going to pick our shots a little little carefully and figure out where the places where we think we can get the most bang for our buck. But I think you're going to see a significant premium on that. And then um, the other piece of it is the people who don't have power and figuring out ways to listen to and tell their story. And I think traditionally when we've thought of the powerless, we've thought of, uh, you know, minorities or we've thought of people who feel voiceless. Mm-hmm. I think there's actually a much larger group of people who feel kind of voiceless right now. Um, and it includes significant numbers of people who voted for, for Donald Trump. I mean, I think part of why they voted for Donald Trump is that they felt that there was this kind of elite establishment that didn't really hear them or represent their concerns. And I'd, I'd like to think that the Huffington Post can be an important place for them to tell their stories and, and, and get, get, get their concerns heard. So this is one of the themes you heard post-Trump election from the Times, from the Post, from people who pay attention to these publications saying they're too elite, it's the, it's the Acela corridor, uh, this is why they couldn't understand what was going on in the election. And a lot of them, I, th- I think, with good intent, have said, we're going to go out into America and we're going to find Trump voters or people who look like Trump voters, and we're going to report on them like they're going out into the bush. And, and the Times is the one I follow the most. They've, they've done these stories. Here's, here's, a, here's a woman in Niles, Michigan, who did not go to the Women's March, and here's what she thinks. I think those are super useful. It still feels a little weird to send someone into America as if it's a foreign yeah. country, which you've done a lot. Do you think that's the model that works for you guys, or is it something else? I, I think that, that you know, there's there's basic reporting, which I think you need to do, which is going out into places and figuring, I mean, you know, we just dispatched a reporter to take a deep dive into what, what happened in Kansas with the shooting of this um, uh-huh. of this uh, this Indian engineer. I think that's an important part of it. But I, I'm really looking to find other ways to tell stories and be a listening post. Um, and I don't want to say too much because we're, you know, still developing some of these ideas, but... Um, you know, I, I think I think we need to have an even more radical approach to getting out into communities and, and listening. So to So not people. just having a Kansas bureau or someone I don't, a Trump reporter. I don't or think a, so. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about are there ways that um, HuffPost can um, you know collaborate you know very closely with local reporting um, organizations, whether they're newsrooms, um, it could be a Christian radio station in a small town. I, I'd love to find ways for us to take our really big platform and connect it to. Local communities in ways that feel more um, indigenous and authentic. I mean, I think the difference between the HuffPost approach to um, to covering um, you know the people who you know, as I think of it, feel left out by the political and economic power arrangements, is that it's more it's less of a question of the topics and the subjects than it is a question of who you think the audience is. Fundamentally, I think a lot of news organizations are going out and trying to explain the Trump voter to the elite back at home. Yeah. Um, or and, by the way, a good half the country that can't understand a Trump voter, right? It's not just it's not Ab- just absolutely. people in New York and Washington. Who no, are absolutely. By this. But I think, but I think that 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 a lot of these organizations feel that they're trying to explain to their readers what's going on in this part of this country that they don't really have access to and aren't exposed to. And what what I'd love um, for the Huffington Post to do is figure out ways to tell uh, the story 
of those people for those people rather than um, rather than thinking of them as subjects to be reported on for somebody else. Um, you know, you, you, we have a, a media ecosystem that, you know, like so many other institutions, there's been this 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 extraordinary drift between the haves and the have nots. Yeah. You know, if you can afford to subscribe to The New York Times or The Washington Post, you know, if you're if you're a person who um you know, who have who has access to these really rich media sources or seeks them out, then you can be a very well informed person. But if you're not, and if you're, you know, kind of a, if you're not a news junkie, if you're someone who's just kind of living your life and catching news on the fly, there are lots of products that are designed to plug right into what your most passionate interests are. The problem is that they tend to be manipulative. You know, it's talk radio, yeah. it's Fox News, it's Breitbart, stuff that floats, fake, fake news that floats up on your on your Facebook right. feed. Or, or, or you get just a very, very, very thin diet of other stuff. Yeah. So I, 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 would, I would love to re, I mean, I see our... The, the DNA of the Huffington Post is very much a kind of like tabloid DNA, um, and tabloid in the best sense. Tabloid like, you know, the Daily News in the 1970s. Um, so I would like to um, to really double down on that DNA, but bring, um, you know, even more original reporting to it and bring it to the day-to-day lived concerns of people who feel like their their, their stories don't often get told. The, the DNA of, of HuffPo is also very left, liberal, progressive, pick your, pick your term. Um, that's from Kenny Lehrer. That's Marianne Huffington. It's, and it's an audience that I think traditionally has sort of seen it as like, this is our version of MSNBC or our version of Fox, whatever, our version of Fox News, our version of before, right. before, Drudge before there was Breitbart. How do you think that audience is going to respond to these changes? Do you feel like they're going to feel like you're sort of undermining them or undercutting them? Or I, I hope because you want to expand it, right? You I, want a bigger. I, I, I think we want to expand it, and I mean, I would love for HuffPost to be a platform that makes it possible for people to see what they have in common with people who don't share their political beliefs. Um, I think that creating the conditions um, under which solidarity can occur um, is is one of my big goals. Um, well, that's the biggest goal ever, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it would be a gigantic idealistic reach in any yeah. era. It seems like particularly now, both in terms of, of because of the division and also because you can see now clearly how, how – what that world – like it, I think a lot of folks like myself have sort of sort of dipping into Breitbart or we make yep. sure that to dip into some weird corner of Facebook we would no, normally never go right. to. It's black and white, right? They, yep. we, we don't share any common ground. Half of Trump voters think that Pizzagate might have happened right. on down the line. It seems like there really is no way to reconcile there those is, two groups. I mean, I think that there are there is a kind of hard nut of support for Donald Trump that includes, um, you know, some unsavory types of people um, who probably are never going to be readers of Deplorables. The Post. Well, you don't want to say that. We, we can, we can, we can use that term. Uh, you know, I think with, that, with a quote around it, How about that, that? with a quote around it. And, and it's, and it's, it, but I think that it represents fundamentally a pretty small group of people. I mean, don't forget Trump did not win the popular vote, right? And there's a significant number of people who voted for Trump who, um, you know, four years earlier had voted for Barack Obama. Right. So I, I actually think that the divides are are serious and meaningful, but I think they're actually not ideological. I think they're really much more about how people live their lives and the um, fears and concerns that they have. And that's why I talk about creating a platform in which solidarity becomes possible. Um, you know, allowing, telling stories in a way that allows people to see what they have in common rather than what divides them. You took this job post-election, so obviously you knew what you were getting into. That said, did you know what you were getting into? Did you know that you were going to be doing daily Trump, 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 Trump? Uh, yeah, and actually, I think a lot about Trump fatigue because I think that uh, I, I look at our our homepage or our app, our Twitter feeds, and our Facebook, and I and I worry that you know people are eventually going to kind of burn out and say, oh, give me something else. Um, and so I think we're we're trying we're trying we're to mix it weeks, up. We're six weeks. We're six weeks into the we're Trump six presidency. We're six weeks in, but um, I mean, you know, from a traffic perspective, the audience doesn't seem to be burning out. Maybe right. that's just me projecting. Um, but look, I I knew that that when I I knew coming in that, and in fact, it was a big driver of me taking this job, the fact that that Trump was going to be president. Um, And it felt like a moment where, I don't know, I I felt almost sort of possessed by this idea that that somebody had to take this extraordinary platform and do something really big with it. Um, And I'd already been talking to HuffPost, obviously, before the the election result came came down. But it it certainly added a sense of urgency um, and and increased the appeal. Um, And, you know, this sounds grandiose, but 
I feel a, like a deep sense of civic mission in trying to make this platform into something that um, that speaks to a very very broad swath of um, of America and frankly the world because it is a global global media company. I don't think it's grandiose. I think I think you have this cool opportunity which a lot of people in journalism don't have, right? Which is the election happened. What am I doing? Why does whatever I'm writing about make any sense to write about? Um, what is my purpose in life? And you've got this chance to say, oh, my purpose is I'm running this big platform. It's been kind of drifting. Mm -hmm. I get to steer it in a direction and affect a lot of people. That's pretty cool. Yeah. No, I, and I think that's – for me, that was very much the, the motivation. And, you know, look, HuffPost is – an extraordinary um, thing because, you know, I worked at the New York Times for almost 15 years um, and see, I got it right that time. Yeah. And uh, for the last three years of my time at the Times, I'd been working on this global expansion effort and um, I'd go all around the world and talk to people about media brands and, you know, who do you read? What do you, you know, who do you trust? What do you like? Uh, what are you looking for in an international media brand? And of course, it's not surprising that the New York Times, given its huge, you know, sort of popular culture resonance, it's, you know, um, how long it's been around. Um, is 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 almost universally recognized by anyone who's a consumer of the news in the world, but right there with it was 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 HuffPost, which has only been around for eleven years and change. Wow. Um, so the idea that this news organization had created that kind of brand resonance in such a short time was just absolutely mind blowing to me. I want to talk to you about how you actually got the job and what you're doing before that and a million other things, but we pay some of our bills here through advertising, so we're going to hear from a fine sponsor. We'll come right back. Today's show is brought to you by HostGator. Are you ready to take your website to the next level? Hope you are, because whether you're a first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a great-looking website or even an online store. And if you ever need a boost in hosting power, HostGator offers cloud, VPS, and dedicated server hosting that can easily handle maximum visitor traffic. See what HostGator can do for your website. Right now, Recode listeners get 60% off if you go to HostGator.com slash Recode. That's HostGator, spelled like an alligator, G-A-T-O-R, dot com slash Recode. Hey, guys. You like media and technology, so there's a very good chance that you are going to be at South by Southwest probably even as you're listening to this podcast. Um, I will be there, along with many of my pals from Recode, and we want to tell you about some cool stuff we're doing there. On Friday, March 10th, I'm interviewing Glenn Beck for this very show, Recode Media. On Saturday, March 11th, Lauren Good and Kara Swisher are going to interview Mary Lou Jepsen from One Laptop Per Child. That's for Too Embarrassed to Ask. On Monday, March 13th, Kara Swisher is going to do a live episode of Recode Decode. I think she's doing that with some folks from Veep, so you should check that out as well. And if that's not enough... Our friends from Verge are going to do two full live episodes of Vergecast. That is all happening March 10th through the 14th at the Nat Geo Further Base Camp in downtown Austin. So go to that. Tickets are free. You can come see me or Kara or Lauren or the Verge guys doing this kind of podcast for free live. But wait, there's more. On Tuesday the 14th, Kara's doing another live interview. This one's at the Austin Convention Center with the founders of Crooked Media, Tommy Vitor, John Lovett, and John Favreau. You guys have heard John Favreau on this podcast, but go hear him on Kara's podcast. So if you're in town for Austin, probably are, come see us at the Nat Geo Further Base Camp or at South by Southwest itself at the Convention Center. We'll post all the details on Rico.net, so check that out. I'm back here with Lydia Polgreen, formerly of the New York Times, currently editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post. Talk a bit about how the, you got that job. I'm assuming someone came to you, or did you raise your hand and say, I want to edit this thing? No. Uh, uh, Jared Gruce, the CEO of Huffington Post, uh, got in touch with me, and um, you know we had a series of conversations. As so he's an he's a AOL executive. Basically, yes. his job is to run the Huffington Post and exactly. some other content sites under that. Yeah. says, I'd like you to – Ariane Huffington has left. Yes. Or had she left already? She had left already. She had, she had so been gone for quite a while. Last summer. Yeah. What do you think? What, what is your reaction when someone comes to you and says, what about running the Huffington Post? Well, I mean, look, I... And by the way, you had one of the cool gigs, the New York Times. Yeah. I mean, I... job. I really thought that I was a lifer at the New York Times. Um, it's one of those rare institutions where people very, very rarely leave. Um, and I was on a great trajectory there. Um, it's an institution whose mission um, I feel incredibly passionate about. Um, and so I felt uh, fairly certain that, um, you know, that, that this wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, and partly, you know, 
out of just curiosity. I'll, so you take I'll, the meeting to take the meeting. I'll take the meeting just to learn what's out there. But what, in the, what are you universe. thinking about when you think Huffington Post in the summer of 2016? I mean, I at the summer. Okay, so I, it was, it's a loaded it was question because like, a lot of people don't think much of it or didn't yeah, think much it was of it. it was more like the fall. Um, and I think like most people, I had kind of a mixed opinion of the Huffington Post. You know, um, stuff would would kind of come to me from Huff Post. Some of it fun, some of it funny. Um, I was. I'd always been a big fan of the HuffPost splash. I felt like it had this wonderful, which is the big headline and photo at the top of the homepage. The, front, the, the, the yeah, homepage. The homepage. Which some people still look at. A lot of people still yeah. look at it. I mean, that's actually one of the great strengths of HuffPost is that, you know. It's we, a destination for it's people. It's still a destination. There. And so we have this power to to set the agenda. You know, I liked its sense of fun uh, that it didn't take it itself too seriously, you know, but – I didn't have a strong feeling or opinion one way or the other. Um, but, you know, when I started having these conversations with with Jared, who I, I found incredibly impressive, he had been an executive at um, at Spotify, at Google. And, you know, I, I it was really a personal connection with him and feeling like yeah. if I'm going to if I'm going to jump in and do something crazy that's not staying on the path that I'm on, uh, this would be the kind of person that I'd want to do it with. Um, so once I felt that I had this really strong personal bond with the CEO of the company, then it became much more thinkable. And um, and I thought, well, this, is, this, this, this actually is a really compelling opportunity. And the fact that HuffPost is interested in hiring someone like me with all of my kind of stodgy newspaper background and, and, and old-fashioned reporting bona fides, Seemed seemed like a good sign, and so as the conversations progressed and got more serious, I was like, "Wow, I'm I'm actually really thinking about doing this." Were you, were you part of the? Because there was a, a for a while, and maybe this is just old ancient history now, but there were a lot of people at the New York Times and traditional media pl- places that for years in 2007, 2008, were really angry about the Huffington Post. They said, "You're taking our work. You're making money from it. You're not citing us. You're lifting it whole cloth." back and forth and back and forth. Were you part of that crew that was upset with the HuffPo? I, I wasn't. I mean, I've always been a um, pro um – Future. Pro future person, um, you know. I grew up in a, I grew up in Kenya and in Ghana in a very kind of information starved environment where we had very very few sources of, of I was, news. I was going to ask you about this later, but yeah. why, why did you grow up in Kenya and Ghana, or how did you? Oh, my to... parents were, were working there. Um, my uh, my dad uh, did development work, um, and they were also uh, Baha'i missionaries. So um, they were there. It was kind of a dual purpose thing. You get a job working somewhere else, and you, you know, spread the faith, and then also you you work and live there. And so uh, so I spent I spent most of my grade school years in Kenya and then most of my high school years in in Ghana. And so from that experience, I mean, like, I just, people romanticize being disconnected and I find it impossible to romanticize being disconnected because I've actually experienced it for long stretches of time. I mean, I, I didn't have a home phone as a as a high school kid, you know? I mean, forget about a cell phone. I didn't have a home phone. Um, so so anyway, um, so no, I wasn't among those who, who railed against the Huffington Post, although it's interesting to note that HuffPost got more traffic by aggregating my coverage of Nelson Mandela's funeral than the New York Times mm-hmm. did. Um, but at the and same, their argument would be, well, we're doing you a favor. Because we're going to point people to, and there was a lot of back and forth. I think yeah. it sort of, again has sort of settled, but I think there was a an argument that had real teeth to it that said you're, yeah. you're taking your work and you're not compensating for and it. and you're not for compensating it. for it. And I think that again the the technological like the technology and and the sort of the platforms have changed so much. I mean, the great thing about the New York Times business model right now is that. When we aggregate their stories, it just burnishes their brand and gets it gets gets it out there and exposes it to more and more people. But in fact, we don't even really do aggregation in the way that we used to. Um, you know, we we do much more of like just linking out, and um, and frankly, just doing our own reporting. Right. Um, so I was looking this morning, and your your first your main two stories on the homepage. If you clicked on either one of them, were not Huffington Post stories. They just sent you to Politico or the Washington Post. A, a, and that's exactly. in, that's intentional on your part, saying, look, here's the best version of that story. It's someone else's. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I think. You know, we do a mix of that, and then also, you know, if someone has a scoop, just like the New York Times, um, if you know, when when um, when the Washington Post broke the story about Jeff Sessions' meetings with the Russian ambassador, uh, the New York Times didn't link to the Washington Post; they chased it, and they right. got they did they wrote up their own version of it right. that they cited it. they matched it, and it cited the um, it cited the the Washington Post as having broken it first. So, I mean, everybody does this now, and it's it's just become part of the of the of the way that we all spread information. On the internet. Um, so, so back to to you thinking through this job in the fall. So, you you, you don't have that HuffPost stigma. It is owned by AOL, which in turn is now owned by Verizon, which is trying to buy Yahoo. 
and if all goes well, you're going to be part of this giant media <laughs> conglomerate, which is part of a yeah. giant telco. How do you think through and how did you think through what life working for Verizon was going to be like? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was it was part of the attraction in part because I am, you know, like a lot of people who work in journalism, obsessed with where media is going. And, um, you know, the New York Times is an independent company. And um, in the grand scheme of things, it's a relatively small company. Um, and I think that they've they've worked out they've worked out a, a, a fantastic business model that's going to sustain and grow um, their journalism. Um, and I think that that's fantastic. But I think that where media is going is to this greater consolidation, and you're going to see more and more of the telco companies, um, you know, the the dumb pipe companies getting into the content business, and and how all that plays out um, is something that's I think all of us are obsessed with and fascinated by. So, what better way to understand it than to get to be right in the in, middle of it, <laughs> get right see in the up, belly of the beast, see it up close and personal. Yeah. I mean. One of the potential downsides here is that we're, this is a cyclical thing that right now everyone wants to marry content and, and, and distribution. So you've got AT&T buying Time Warner and Verizon buying Yahoo and AOL. But it's, especially for Verizon, I mean, their, their core business is still selling phone service, right? And will be that for yeah, a long time. If they're extraordinarily success, successful with AOL and Yahoo, it'll be just sort of marginally Absolutely. At the margins yes. for them. So it's very easy for them to walk away from this as well yes. and go, eh, we're, we're not in the content business. Right. It turns out it's difficult. Um, there's all kinds of issues with privacy and ad targeting. Yep. And I guess I'm just telling you that you know this, right? Because <laughs> you're a smart well, person. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that that's, there's always a chance of that. Um, you know, I think what you're seeing is a trend towards, um, I mean, especially especially if, if, if net neutrality is dead, right? Um, the content offerings that it's a, um, well, I mean, we'll see, but... Um, it could always it's, come back, it, right? It could, I mean, it they, could <laughs> come back zombie-like, but, but they're putting um, a stake through it. But, um, but the content offerings that any particular carrier can offer, um, you know, free of charge with no data, um, with no data charges, things like that, I think actually could become a really important differentiating factor. I mean, why does Amazon, you know, pay Jill Soloway to make transparent? Right. Ultimately, it's to push people to be prime subscribers so they'll buy more paper towels, they'll buy, you know. So, I mean, it, you know, are they ultimately going to say, eh, the, co- the content business they is might. not worth it? They might. They might. It's possible. But I think that it is, um, it is a shrewd way to get people bought into your service and committed to your service in a uh, a deeper way um, and, and in, a, in a non-commodity way. That's the issue, right? Is that ultimately, if your service is a commodity, the only thing you compete on is price. Right. Although, if I'm an AT&T customer, I'm still going to be able to get to HuffPo. Of course. But it's it's. I think the broader content strategy is it's not just HuffPost, yep. right? I mean, it's a, a lot of other things as well. Um, I mean, $85 billion is a lot of money to pay for Time Warner. Um, So, um, you know, assuming it goes through, I think that um, AT&T must have some big plans there. Yeah. Well, that's probably a different podcast. But one more thing about about AOL and Verizon and versus the Times. So the Times is moving more and more towards a subscription business model. Mm -hmm. They still make most of their money from Africa, or maybe split. Nope. They, no, they don't. So it's you, more you than 50%. This. So they're, they're already, they've yeah. already tipped over. And they said, this is our future. Is, is We're going to be Spotify. We're going to be yeah. Netflix. You're going to pay for us. That's how it's going right. to work. Uh, Verizon is very much moving towards advertising, targeted ads, yep. video. Well, obviously, you're comfortable in that business model, I guess, since that's where you've joined. But right. it's, it's a big switch mentally, I think it's, right? it's a big switch mentally. But I think that, again, this goes back to my sort of slight discomfort um, at the times post-election was, you know, wow, as we become a – a subscription-first organization, we get much better at figuring out who our subscribers are, and the product ultimately has to fit with that market, right? And so um, if you're talking about people who can pay, um, if you're talking about, um, you know, people who are, are are going to lean forward and 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 become subscribers to the Times, you're talking about a fairly, fairly narrow band of society. Big but narrow. Big but narrow, yeah. right? And, um, and, you know, like I said, I think it's amazing that you've seen this huge boom in people wanting to subscribe to the Times. But it can't be the only option out there. You know, there's got to be other things. And, um, you know, look, there are major problems with the ad-supported model. Believe me, I live it every day. Um, 
And I think that there needs to be much, much more innovation in this space. I think that, you know, whether it's whether it's ad tech or whether it's, um, you know, different kinds of subscription models that are much lower cost or bundling or, you know, there's there's all kinds of things that are out there that people are talking about that, that could possibly be solutions to this problem. But, um, you know, look, it's, it's the New York Times exists as a kind of public service. The Washington Post also. Right. And, and they've right. always owned by a billionaire, owned by a very rich family. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Right? I mean, well, yeah. No, it's true. Um, I think Jeff Bezos is a lot richer than yeah, the Salzburgers. No, but, very different, yes. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I think that, you know, when you talk about the conversation about aggregation, I mean, the New York Times and the Washington Post have always set the agenda for, like, the the nightly news broadcast, for example, you know. So when, you know, all the way back to Walter Cronc- Cronkite to, you know, um, to, to Lester Holt or whoever's doing it today, you know, they read the Times and they essentially aggregate from it yep. to um, to make up their broadcast. Um, now they have to read Breitbart and Twitter. They the do. President they does. do. And I think it's interesting. I mean, I I you know I have long been a fan of Breitbart, uh, fan meaning in the Facebook sense. On Facebook, um, you know, I follow them on Twitter um, and a bunch of other you know right wing sites. Just this is I like this is pre Trump. This is sure. Yeah. I mean, I just like to know what else is going on out there uh-huh. um, in the information landscape. Um, and of course, Breitbart enjoys a very close kinship with HuffPost. Um, you know, we basically are kind of they took your separated at separated at birth twins yeah. <laughs> on the other side, which uh, then they did they did take our, our playbook and and I think have have done very well with it. A bunch of different places, um, but I want to ask about the times in your career there. You were there for fifteen years. We've, we've got that right now. I think of you mostly as a as a foreign correspondent. Yeah, that's Africa, right. I mean, India. Yeah, yeah. so I, uh, you know, I started out as a metro reporter. I did, you know, went through all the paces. I was hired into the, um, you know, kind of trainee reporter program, and uh, I was pretty young. I was twenty six at the time. How do you get to the Times at twenty six? So I had worked at the. Uh, so I'd gone to Columbia Journalism School. My first job in journalism was at the Washington Monthly. I was an unpaid intern. I waited tables at night. And then uh, I went to journalism school at Columbia and uh, very lucky I got a scholarship. And um, and then while I was at Columbia, I met a woman named Nancy Sharkey who used to run this trainee reporter program. She was an editor at the Times. And, um, you know, she met me at Columbia and said, oh, you seem like someone I should keep an eye on who, you know, maybe 10 years down the line could be a... Uh, and that's, the, that's a program where the Times specifically <laughs> wants people of color. Women, yeah, or right? just people who don't have the kind of resume that would, you know, usually, I mean, one of the problems I think the Times has is that you tend to get people later in their careers and you don't necessarily grow your own talent. And it's good to have a mix. Uh-huh. And so, you know, it's it's not specifically designed for diversity purposes, but obviously that's, that's an, I think that's one of the very important goals. Um, like any news organization, I think the Times is, is, is very keenly aware of the need to diversify its staff in many different ways. So I got hired into that program. Oh, so no, so I, um, sorry, I was at the, um, I was at the Albany Times Union right out of journalism school covering a few small towns there. And then I worked briefly at the Orlando Sentinel and um, then got hired into this special program at the Times. And and, and so traditionally the, the, the Times sort of track is, or the old track was, you're going to go do Metro and National and you're going to go to Russia at some point and you do the various stations of the cross and that's how you ascend the masthead. And I didn't look that carefully, but it seems like you spent a lot of time overseas, which must have meant you liked it. Or yeah, it no, there. I did. Um, so I came in as a young Metro reporter and I sort of, they sort of put me through their, the, the paces. I spent some time at one police plaza in the shack, you know, uh, you know, as as most reporters do, which was a great kind of formative experience. So ex- explain I, to people who don't <clears throat> spend all their days in newspapers what the shack is. The shack is this disgusting warren of um, closet-sized offices um, attached to the brutalist building um, that is the poli- New York City Police Department's headquarters uh, down at the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. And uh, you go there and get, you know, basically verbally abused all day, every day. By, and your job is to go in and say, what do you got? You go in and you say, what do What's you got? What's the weirdest crime? And everybody is, you know, looking over their shoulder at who's got what, right? I mean, you know, the Post guys are super focused on whatever salacious crime. High-minded New York Times reporters, of course, are looking for stories of police corruption. And But um, I got to work there with, um, with, with Willie Rashbaum, who's like a legendary New York City reporter, um, still works at the Times. He's the guy that broke the Elliot Spitzer with prostitute story. So I was, uh, I was very well taught uh, the ins and outs of police reporting. And, uh, you know, that got shipped up to the Westchester Bureau back when we had one. Um, but all in all, I was really only in New York for about two years. And then um, 
Again, on a very compressed time frame, the West Africa Bureau came open rather suddenly because the West Africa Bureau chief at the time, her husband got a job um, in in New Delhi, and so she wanted to go to New Delhi. And so they, they transferred her there, and, um, you know, I said, I actually would love to go you to raised your Africa. Hand. I raised my hand. And, um, you know, I'd already had a couple of breaks. Um, they had sent me to Haiti uh, during the... Um, Bicentennial crisis, and then Jean-Bertrand Aristide uh, uh, ended up uh, being pushed out of the country. So I covered that, and so I think they they had a sense that uh, that you know that that, that I you was, had a this. passion for this. And actually, during the whole Jason Blair debacle, they had started uh, posting all of the jobs uh, that were open at the time because one of the things that happened during all of that was a sense that people were getting opportunities that didn't necessarily deserve them or weren't necessarily the right people because these were being handled in a very secretive way. So one of the things that happened after the Jason Blair um, debacle was they started- board and says we're hiring for this <clears throat> slot. Yeah. Basically, they started posting all jobs. So they posted that they were hiring a, a Johannesburg bureau chief. And you know, I was, I don't know, 20, 27, 28 at the time. I had been at the paper like maybe a year and a half. And uh, I had the temerity to put my hand up for it. And- um, Roger Cohen, who's now an opinion columnist, but at the time was the foreign editor, sort of gamely uh, met with me and uh, was sufficiently impressed that he sent me down. Not, I mean, he basically said, there's no chance I'm giving you this job. This is a very prestigious posting. Um, two former executive editors of the New York Times had been Johannesburg bureau chief, Joe Lelyveld and, uh, and Bill Keller. So he said, I'm not giving you this job, but I do need someone to fill in until I can find an actual grown-up to do the job. Yeah. And so he sent me down there for about six weeks, uh, which was an absolutely thrilling experience. And so but I kind of proved that that you know that I that, that I, you could do it. And so when you said I want to do this, I want to go to West Africa, was you thought this is what I want to do, sort of for my career, or this is something I'll do and then I'll come back and I'll, I'll keep moving up the ladder. I didn't really think that far in advance. I mean, I was um, I was really young. I was so passionate about being a foreign correspondent. I loved the work. I loved being in the field. I loved. Um, Covering conflict, I loved color, covering development. Uh, to me, um, you know, I'd, I'd grown up as a kid watching these extraordinary events unfold. I mean, I lived through my first coup attempt when I was like six years old in Kenya. Um, you know, I'd seen a transition from military rule to democracy in Ghana when I was in high school. So, you know, I thought this is what I was going to do for the rest of my life, um, and I and I really really loved it. But the truth is, after 10 years, I realized that I didn't want to be an expat anymore. Um, I had grown up as an expat kid, and I think that there is a um, a kind of um, – I think that long-term expatriate life has the potential to deform your character if you're not in what, careful. In what way? Well, you lose you – lose, you lose your ties, you know. Um, I mean, for me, it was very clear that the friends who'd been super excited to come visit my wife and I in Senegal or in India, you know, when they were in their 20s and early 30s, suddenly had like two and three-year-old kids and were like, we're not coming we're to done. India to visit you. We're done. And so if we wanted to keep up those, and that included my brothers, by the way, who I'm very close with, I realized that if I wanted to keep those ties up, that I'd, you had to come back. I'd need to come back. And uh, and that, that was very important to me. And, and I, you know, you also, I think, realized that that over time, you, you do want to do different things and you do want to have different kinds of experiences. And I'd had this very strong um, interest in um, technology and media. Um, you know, I was one of the first people to, um, to use Twitter at the Times. So I was one of the first people to, to use Twitter as a foreign correspondent. And I remember... When you used Twitter as a foreign correspondent at the time, especially when you did it, what, what does that entail? Well, just meaning that I had an account and that I was tweeting, right? Um, right, because there was this back and forth, and I think there's no longer a debate about it. People just say, if you have something, if you have a thought, put it up in the Times. Uh, put, it up, put it up on Twitter, don't worry about right. saving it for the Times. But I think at some organizations still to this day, there's... We're not paying you to publish on Twitter. It needs to go on the wire. Or so this was when, even you were, before that right, debate, so they, right? Right. They, they just didn't even know what Twitter was. I think nobody really knew what Twitter was, except for a few geeky people back in New York. And the culture at the Times was so um, self-effacing. Um, I mean, publicly self-effacing. Yeah. Of course, there are huge egos all over the place, right? And, and tremendously insecure. Works both ways. Always. I mean, journalists are insecure over achievers. But the Times right? has a really mix of, we're the New York Times, and right. we're the New York Times. Do you think we're going to die? Right. So at first, when I when I joined Twitter, it felt it had this like weird kind of sheen of self promotion about it. So I didn't want anybody to know about it, you know. And I thought, oh, this is a really interesting thing that I want to play with, but I don't want anybody to know that I'm actually doing it. But you know, I joined Twitter 
just as I was leaving West Africa and going to India, and in, in India, Twitter was huge. You know, it was the way that you tapped into like the important elite media conversations and in powerful, you know, political circles and things like that. So I had gotten very, very interested in, um, you know, technological change in media, you know, how information travels and things like that. And sort of through that, I think uh, the folks back in New York knew that this was an interest of mine. And eventually they asked me to come back and be a deputy editor on the international desk. Um, in part because I think they were trying to, this was before the innovation report came out, they were trying to really um, bring in um, people who had traditional media backgrounds, but had... But also um, knew how a computer worked or how Twitter worked. Well, it, it had an aptitude and interest yeah. in um, in sort of digital transformation. So the innovation report you referenced, we were talking about this at a different podcast a couple weeks ago, that this was the initial thing that came out a few years ago. It was supposed to be internal, but it leaked. And it said, among other things, hey, Huffington Post and BuzzFeed are reaching a lot of people, oftentimes with our work, better than we are. We should figure out how to do this. Exactly. And yeah. that's sort of what you tapped into. And so, yeah. So, I mean, when I when I came back, uh, it was not long after that that they released the innovation report. And it was clear that there was a strong need at the Times for, for great journalists to start really engaging with the fundamental problems of, of our industry. Back to Twitter for a second. My, my perception of you, and I don't – maybe other people feel the same way, was you're someone I knew through Twitter – more so than even your your work. Um, I'm ugly American. I probably didn't read that many international right. bylines. I knew you, and it was solely through Twitter. Were you aware, sort of consciously, that you were sort of creating space for you and your personal brand through Twitter, or is it just a byproduct of being I on guess. Twitter? I don't know. I mean, I just think that, like, you know, one of the interesting byproducts of being a foreign correspondent is that you spend a lot of time alone. And um, and the great thing about Twitter is, like, you're never alone, and there are always people to talk to. Um, so to me, um, if it was sort of brand-making in that way, it was a, a symptom of being an extrovert, um, you know, in an introvert's job. So back to your resume, you, you're at the Times, you're moving up and up and up. You are everything the New York Times says they want to have. You are digitally savvy. You're smart. You've done international reporting. Um, you're a woman of color. You're a lesbian. They say they want those things, but they want a more diverse newsroom. Right. It seems like you could go very, very high up the masthead if you wanted to. I mean, I think, look, there are, I mean, those are your words, not mine. I mean, I, I feel like I had, I felt like the Times was a great place for me to work and that, that, you know, it was definitely clear to me that the only limits to my ambition were, um, you know, sort of what I wanted to do and living up to the the promise that other people felt that I had. So I felt like I was on a great trajectory at the Times and, um, you know, uh, that they had made, you know, an extraordinary effort to keep giving me really interesting challenges. There's a public editor column out this week saying there's a real problem with women at the Times. There aren't enough of them. There aren't enough of them in in, in real power. There aren't enough of them <clears throat> reporting. Um, now that you're outside the paper for a couple months, does your perspective on that change at all? No. I mean, look, I think that, you know, look, they've just, they've just appointed three very senior editors, uh, female editors to the masthead, uh, which I think is, which I think is great. Um, but look, the facts don't, you know, the facts don't lie. You know, I th one of the greatest lines in that piece was about how Maggie Haberman alone got 141 million page views. Right. That <laughs> was like, that's extraordinary. But, you know, they're... they're she's covering Trump, She's right, covering Trump. And, and, and she's covering and Trump. And she's awesome at it. And she's, she's amazing at it. So, and she does these very dishy stories. But, um, you know, there are days when, you know, without anybody really thinking about it, you'll have a front page that's all uh, male bylines. You'll have a homepage that's all male bylines. Um, you know, it's, it's clearly a continuing problem at the times. And it's, these things are deep, you know, um, the, uh, there was this great line in, um, in the book about the uh, uh, lawsuit against the Times called The Girls in the Balcony, where, um, and it's right at the end, um, where there's a group of, there, Arthur Salzberger, the, the current publisher, is speaking to a group and says, I, I hope that the, you know, the newspaper that my son inherits is, is um, you know, is, is better than the one that I did. And um, one of the, and I'm paraphrasing here, and in an aside, uh, one of the women says to the other, I hope Arthur remembers that he has a daughter. So, and by the way, his son's going to run the paper. Well, I mean, he's the deputy publisher. Yeah. But I mean, I think that it's, um, 
you know, I mean, there have been powerful women in the Salzberger family, definitely. But, you know, this time around, the the, the three competing for the top spot were all male. How, um, how important is it for you to have a diverse masthead and newsroom at HuffPo? And do you feel like you've got more ability to create that change there than you would have than the times has it's absolutely essential to me and i think that um you know like a lot of people i think about diversity in in a very kind of broad and complex way um you know i i feel like i'm very wedded to um you know kind of economic and class diversity that seems extremely important in this moment right now i think that you know ethnic diversity is always important and you know are we doing as well as we could absolutely not can we do better absolutely yes and i work on it every day um i'm super interested in religious diversity i mean i feel like it would be great to have more reporters who themselves are people of faith or who grew up at least in environments of faith. Seems like the class and religion part of it is almost harder for at least a publication that's based in New York City. Your offices are in Manhattan, right? You're excluding a lot of people who cannot afford to live in or near Manhattan. Right. But we also have people based all around the country, you know. So one of the things that I've been trying to do is make it much easier and for people to be based in lots of different places and still be full contributors to and and staff staff members of HuffPost because I think that's an absolutely essential part of it is not saying like if you want to work at HuffPost you have to come you know to our office on Astor Place. What's your relationship like with Ariana Huffington? It's very warm, uh, friendly. Um, we've met twice. So I saw you once right before you went to see her for the first time, Yes. Right? I, so I met her once right before my appointment was announced. And then she and I had dinner a couple of weeks ago. And she's been incredibly generous. She's given me lots of advice. So you met, you met her once before the job was announced, but you already had the job. Yes. So it, well, you weren't going there to get her blessing. Oh, no, no, no. And in fact, we didn't really talk about it because it wasn't public at that time. Right. You know, it, it was very So she knew you held. had the job. I, I actually don't know if she knew yeah. that I had the job. I think she had some inkling. Um, it was the Kara Swisher thing. Here. So you should uh, talk yeah, to Lydia. Yeah. I, I mean, I assume that she – I'm sure that she had some inkling that uh-huh. that that's, was the context. But, um, you know, I was under strict orders to um, to keep it a secret and, and so I did. So um, you, went, you went and met her and then you had dinner and – And then she and I had dinner a few weeks ago and she's been um, incredibly generous and welcoming. I mean, I think she knows, you know, that she built this extraordinary thing. And I think she's very happy to have um, another woman carrying it forward. I think that was something that was pretty important to her. And I think she wants to see HuffPost um, thrive and grow, you know, now that she's moved on. You you joked about at the beginning, you said it's not going to be Paul Post, But it very much, a lot of that publication's success, and then at the beginning and for a long time, was tied to her personality. She decided they wanted to go on a protest to fill up a bus full of people and go protest in Washington. She went and did it. Um, she decided that sleep was very important, so there was a, a sleep beat. What do you think of that model sort of saying, this is specifically my thing and I'm going to imprint my personality on it versus this thing has its own DNA and I'm going to sort of steer it? Well, I mean, I think a lot of news organizations kind of start out that way, right? I mean, they're a vehicle. I mean, I'm talking ancient history now. They're a vehicle for a um, a founder, an owner um, who has a particular point of view, an ideology, yep. or you know, interests. I mean, the Chandler family running the L.A. Times, you know, until um, until the good Chandler finally came along. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's it's. I think this is this has been the history of media um, for for a very long time. Ultimately, I think they the ones that 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 succeed uh, find uh, a way to marry the identity of the founder to something that that outlives the founder, um, and and kind of extends that 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 basic DNA into something much broader. Um, and I think that's that's what I'm trying to do. I don't, you know, I'm incredibly proud of of what of what Ariana built, and I see myself as very much standing on her shoulders. And extending it. When is it a good time to check back with you? Because you say you've got these reorgs and you want to start shifting focus a bit. When's a good time to come back and say, here's what I've done? You give yourself a year or two years? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I hope that in a year you're going to see a pretty different uh, Huffington Post, both in terms of how it looks and feels, the kinds of stories that we're doing. You know, I think some things are going to feel very familiar. You know, the splash will always be at the core of our identity. Um, and that... That's the homepage again. If you yeah. Were, if you weren't paying attention the first time. Yeah. But like, it's it's not just the homepage, but the, the top of the homepage where we have the big headline and the big photo that kind of gives you a, a snapshot of like, you know, the HuffPost take of whatever. It's a great picture right now of Trump's tie billowing over his head. It's great. Yeah. I can't let you leave without one more Trump question. Um, You were one of the several publications that was banned from a press conference. 
right? That Shots? is correct, yes. Um, has that kept going? I see Spicer's continuing to have these gaggles that are now off camera. Are, are you Have you been let back into the, the fold? Um, as far as I know, our reporters have been able to, to get access. It seems that that was a one-time thing, but um, we're watching that with very, very great concern. I mean, I think it's extremely important that reporters be allowed to do their jobs. That said, you know, HuffPost is not looking for stories in a briefing room. Right. So, right. So that's, I, I keep going back in my head around and around on this question, right? On the one hand, you, it's bad for Trump to only speak to a handful of outlets and to cut people off. On the other hand, I think even in the best of circumstances, you're all going to get the same information. And we've been seeing over and over now that the things that the Trump spokespeople say are, are almost – are often untrue. Yes. Right? So yeah. even So literally writing down what Sean Spicer has said – doesn't help anyone. Yeah. I do think it's important that journalists, that a number of journalists, and ideally, you know, as many are, as are accredited to the White House, are able to put questions to the administration. Even if it's a, even if even it's if it's just a brick theater. wall or worse. Even if it's just theater, I think it's important, like, for the record, that these questions be asked and what that if, they be what, confronted. But, but if the response is going to be... He is not retiring. He is not recusing himself. Any number of things. And then thirty seconds later, the he recuses himself. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I think that's. I think it that's, seems like that's, that's actually a damaging thing to actually go ahead and say Sean Spicer said this because what's the point? No. I mean, but I think that I think that again, for the record, it's important to to have a full document of the madness of these times. And I think that having journalists ask those questions, even if they're getting absurd, even answers, if it's entirely kabuki. Yeah. Even if it's entirely kabuki, if that's all you do, you're not doing your job. You know. Um, but I think the. the this is one of those places where HuffPost can make judicious choices and say, you know what, we're just not going to go to the briefing anymore because there's or, – or, you know, Jay Rosen had this great line, send the interns, yeah. you know, because if you're basically just going to be taking down what this person says and that nothing nothing that they say is actually useful or important, then yeah, send the interns. It's a tough line though, right? I mean HuffPost tried this during the primary. It said Trump's a joke. He's entertainment. We're going to cover him as such. He's not a serious person. And eventually I had to track back because it turns out he's the president of the United States. Yes. Yeah. I mean, look, I wasn't there at the time. It's not what I would have done. I actually think that um, that our job is to report, report. I would say, passionately. Um, I wouldn't say dispassionately. Uh, I think that um, we should write our stories and let readers make their own conclusions about whether Trump is a joke, you know, whether he's a misogynist. Um, so, you know, I wasn't there at the time. It wasn't my choice, but um, it's... Um, but, it, but I mean, it, as you think about maybe we're not going to send anyone to, to the gaggle, maybe we'll send the intern to the gaggle. That's kind of the same decision, right? At some point. No, maybe I, don't, something, I don't think something that's the same decision. There. I don't think that's the same decision at all because these are, you know, these are televised events. You can monitor them in a million ways and it's, you know, I think If that, something of import is said, you'll know about it. Absolutely. I think that we will cover Trump aggressively and um, if we can free up more reporters to to cover his administration aggressively or cover the Democrats or cover whoever by not sending someone to the briefing, so be it. You've got a pretty cool job. Thanks for telling us about it. Thank you. Thanks for your time, Lydia Bullgreen. Thanks to you guys for listening. You know how to find all of the interviews we do like this. But in case you don't, in case you wandered in off the street and someone put headphones on you, you can find this stuff on iTunes, on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, anywhere that makes podcasts for free. You can hear these things. Um, you can also go listen to our Code Media Conference replays over on Recode Replay. So you can hear Eddie Q and Jason Blum and Stacey Snyder. These are all big deals in the entertainment business. That's a conference that costs literally thousands of dollars, but you can listen to it for free. That's over at Recode Replay. Kara Swisher, who we just talked about, has a show called Recode Decode. Lauren Good from The Verge has Too Embarrassed to Ask. All for you, all for free, in part because of our sponsors, Amazon Web Services and HostGator. Thanks to Digital Media, who sells those ads and distributes our show. Thanks again, Lydia. See you guys next week. <laughs>